So how often have you heard this phrase, we will be a fiscally responsible government that will return the budget to surplus? But does it really matter? And should we be concerned when governments run into deficits? Dr. Stephen Hale described himself as a modern monetary theory economist with an interest in ecological economics and He's Adjunct Associate Professor at Torrens University. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Rod. Nice to speak to you. Now, uh, you are also author of a book, The Economics for Sustainable Prosperity, and a contributor to the book, of which I am a co-editor, Sustainability and the New Economics. Now, Stephen, I find it strange that after 200 years of economic theories, there is still debate about where money comes from. So which comes first, the tax or the money? Hmm. That's that, that could be a very long answer to that question. It's probably best not to, not to do a very long answer because uh, the long answer goes all the way back to Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago and we haven't got 5,000 years to chat at the moment. Um, modern monetary theory is a branding for an approach to thinking about economics and the role of the government and the government's budget in the economy, which takes the monetary system, the modern monetary system, seriously. And if you take the modern monetary system seriously, then you um, start off by distinguishing between currency issuers and currency users. And you and I and every business out there and every not-for-profit and even state governments are currency users. That means before we spend Australian dollars, we've got to earn them or save them up in the past or borrow them. But if we borrow them now, of course, to pay for our spending, we've got to pay them back later and we can get into trouble doing that, we can become insolvent, we can go bust. That applies to a state government, at least in theory. So if we're talking about the government of New South Wales or Victoria, before they spend dollars, if they spend extra dollars, they have to go and find them somewhere. So in their cases, the tax comes first before they can spend. Just like for you and me, the income comes first or we have to borrow first before we can spend. But the federal government, the Commonwealth government, is in a completely different position to everybody else because it sits at the top of our monetary system. It is the issuer, the mon monopoly issuer of the Australian dollar. Every dollar that the federal government ever spends, and before the pandemic, they were spending about uh, uh, $1.5 billion a day. They've been spending rather more than that since the pandemic struck. Every single dollar they, every, they ever spend every day is a new dollar. It's a new credit in the monetary system. It's going into somebody's bank account. It's been created just by using keys on a keyboard. And what taxes do is they just delete some of those dollars which have been previously spent into the system to make sure there's not too many dollars in the system and to make sure that uh, all, all, all those uh, uh, all, all those dollars that have been created are not putting uh, inflationary pressure on the system. But 
The spending comes first before the taxation. It's not the other way around. And indeed, it couldn't be the other way around. It, it, you can't pay taxes with dollars that don't exist. And if you imagine us introducing the Australian dollar today, if we were just introducing the currency, the government would have to spend some of it into the system before they could tax some of it back out. Again, and logically, that's the way in which it works. And when you understand how the monetary system works, and when you understand particularly that fact about the monetary system, it changes the way you see everything else, including government deficits and surpluses and, and government debt. Does that mean that then a federal government budget is not like a household budget? Because if I was running a deficit in my private uh, accounts, uh, you'd say that's not a good financial strategy, but a federal government is not the same. And is it the case for all federal governments? Are there constraints that some governments can't do that? Well, I'm not saying that uh, any government is completely free of constraints. It's just the nature of those constraints we have to think about. But uh, it is the case that they're in a completely different position to everybody else. For example, if we're talking about the Australian government, um, all the uh, narrative that you, you may have heard down the years about returning the budget to surplus and needing to balance the budget over time, historically that's hardly ever happened. If you look at the original budget papers anyway, without um, redoing the accounting and changing all the definitions and going back into history, and rewriting the history of the 1950s and 60s, Going right the way back to Federation, the Australian government has been, the Commonwealth government has been in, in deficit more than 80% of the time. And uh, the only significant period in modern times when there's been a surplus was actually during the Howard Costello government when they were running budget surpluses eight out of 10 years and people on the conservative side of politics they argue that that's responsible, and even people on the Labour side of politics are intimidated into, into um, echoing that almost when they talk about budget repair. But in fact, a government surplus simply means they're taking more dollars out of the system than they're putting in. It's just a vacuum cleaner for the so, Australian dollar, so and it drove the private sector into, into deficit and into debt. At the time when the government runs a deficit, the government is spending more dollars into the system than they're taking out of the system. And that allows the private sector to save, to do the opposite. And that's what we've seen actually in the last year when it's often in the news at the moment that um, household savings are much higher than they were a year or two ago. Household balance sheets are much stronger. And that's a result of all the deficit spending. So just see if I've uh, understood you correctly. You said that uh, taxation takes money out of the system and that means that running a surplus is effectively sucking money out of the economy. Is that, have I got that correct? That's absolutely right. It's just a vacuum cleaner sucking dollars out of bank accounts because after all, every single dollar the government spends is a dollar in somebody's bank account. They're putting a dollar into somebody's bank account. Uh, we're not on a gold standard or anything, so a dollar has no physical existence. It's just uh, it, it's just numbers on a spreadsheet on a computer. And when the federal government spends, then uh, 
the Reserve Bank of Australia on behalf of the government puts dollars into your or my bank account. That's how it works. And when we pay our taxes, well, those dollars disappear from our bank accounts. I and mean, without going into details about how uh, the exchange settlement accounts of our authorised deposit-taking institutions work and how they interact with the Treasury. Essentially, that's what's going on. Every dollar the federal government spends is a dollar in somebody's bank account in the private sector. Uh, of course, it matters whose. It matters whether it's going to mining billionaires, whether it's propping up uh, fossil fuel companies, or whether it's uh, providing people who might be relying on... Uh, the job seeker payment, inadequate job seeker payment on, uh, with enough income to have a reasonable life. But that's what's happening when the government spends and when the government taxes, they're just deleting dollars from our accounts. Those dollars don't go anywhere, at least not meaningfully. There is an accounting record that the tax has been paid. But what actually happens is that every official measure of the money supply is reduced by one dollar every time somebody pays a dollar in taxation to the federal government. Basically, the dollars are deleted from the system. They're thrown, you might say, into the digital bonfire. Okay, so you've mentioned uh, constraints, and in the paper this morning there's an article that reads, uh, Global inflation pressures may force RBA to take rate hike. So inflation is one constraint. Can you talk that through a bit? And what are the other constraints on whether uh, a government can, inverted commas, print money? Well, we never say print money. And that's partly because of the images that that evokes in people's minds of Germany 99 years ago now and hyperinflation after the First World War. And there's a complicated story, which perhaps we won't get into now because it is a century ago, uh, underlining, underlying that was Zimbabwe in 2008. But it depends who you are, uh, what the nature of the constraints you face happen to be. The Australian government, like the US government, like the UK government, like the Japanese government, like New Zealand, like a few other countries that I could mention, is what we call a full monetary sovereign. You are a monetary sovereign if you uh, issue a currency that you collect taxes in, if you have a floating exchange rate, if you don't fix your currency to a, a foreign currency or to a commodity like gold or to anything that you could run out of, and if you have, as a government, no significant foreign currency denominated debt. Foreign investors own a lot of Australian government bonds, but the Australian government has issued no foreign currency debt since 2004. So our government has no debt that it has to repay in a currency of which it is not the issuer. Now, what that means is that there's no purely financial constraint on the Australian Commonwealth government. They obviously cannot run out of the currency that they issue. Not everybody understands that, but it's a simple fact. And once you do understand it, then it just seems blindingly obvious. But that doesn't mean that our government faces no constraints at all. Our economy as a whole, and this is true of every economy around the world, faces a constraint in terms of what it's possible to produce 
in the short run, that depends on the amount of uh, labor and skills and capital equipment and technology and institutional capacity and natural resources we have available to us. And of course, this is very, very important in the short run, but only binding over time, we face a, a, a vitally important ecological constraint too. That's what constrains the spending and the uh, economic policy space generally of the Australian government. Now, if you are a country which isn't a monetary sovereign, then you face uh, other constraints. You face the financial constraint that I just dismissed for Australia. So, for example, if you are Greece, you don't issue your own currency. 20 years ago, you gave up your monetary sovereignty, you gave up your currency, you um, started to use the euro, which is effectively for Greece a foreign currency issued by the European Central Bank, over which Greece has virtually no influence at all. And so Greece is then in the same position, really, as an Australian state is. It's a currency uh, user, not a currency issuer. It can become insolvent, and it very nearly went bankrupt about a decade ago and has suffered since then, imposed upon it by other members of the European Union, dreadful austerity and uh, with terrible consequences, all, all sorts of different kinds. If you are a country like Turkey or Argentina, your monetary sovereign has also been compromised because in both of those two countries, they have historically chosen to fix the value of their currency against a foreign currency. And if, if you're going to do that, you have to be prepared to use your reserves of that foreign currency to buy up your own currency on the foreign exchange market if traders around the world are selling your currency, speculating it's going to depreciate. And that tends to encourage you to build up big foreign currency denominated debts, which then mean you can get into trouble because, of course, if you are Turkey, you don't issue the euro or the US dollar. If you're Argentina, you don't issue the US dollar. You can be forced into an issue where you might default. But if you do that, you get in trouble with the US because you probably issued debt under US law uh, or where you're forced to go to the International Monetary Fund and they'll force you into dreadful austerity. You'll be closing down schools. You'll be not able to have enough drugs to look after people in hospital. You'll be slashing old age pensions. You'll be cutting public services left, right and centre and destroying your economy. So it depends who you are, really. Now, you mentioned inflation. Um, yes, it is possible that if uh, the Australian Commonwealth government was to um, go bananas with its spending, we could have such a high level of demand in Australia that we had widespread shortages because of spending being well beyond the productive capacity of our economy and that being inflationary. That isn't the problem at the moment, however, and it probably hasn't ever been the problem during Australian history. The upward pressure on inflation that we've had, it's still relatively moderate in Australia compared to most other high-income countries around the world, but it's, it's centred 
um, largely on um, energy, particularly oil and petrol, and the indirect effects of the big increase in oil prices over the uh, last year on costs across the whole economy and other supply chain and pandemic related issues. So it's not been about a massive surge in spending in the economy. Spending has recovered to where it was, a, a bit above where it was before the pandemic. But it isn't as though we have widespread shortages because of spending going out of control. It's to do with the supply side of the economy, the inflation that we are faced with at the moment. It is relatively moderate anyway. I do think, I mean, we're talking uh, on the day of the RBA monetary policy decision uh, for February. Uh, I think that they'll announce that they're going to stop buying uh, government bonds, stop doing quantitative easing, which they've been doing during the whole of the pandemic. I don't think that's particularly important because I don't think, as I explained in my chapter of the book, I, I believe that um, quantitative easing has much impact on total spending in the economy anyway. But I think later on in the year, it may be that the RBA, despite the fact they said they wouldn't do this until wages started to rise, and, or, or, and probably until 2024, I think they might be intimidated by the general narrative into raising, beginning to raise the cash rate, which will either have no impact at all, or could even be uh, potentially counterproductive in that increasing interest rates actually increases the cost of living to many people, increases business costs, can sometimes put upward pressure on prices rather than downward pressure. And then central banks can sometimes overreact and raise interest rates too far, uh, in which case you can then potentially, if you're not careful, deliver for yourself a property crash. And that would bring inflation down but it would have, for many people, uh, catastrophic consequences. It's not necessary to increase interest rates. Okay. It is necessary to make investments to try and deal with those supply chain problems. And, of course, in the long run, the best way of reducing our uh, uh, the impact that rising oil prices can have on our economy is to shift away from using fossil fuels. Now, my perception is that among economists generally, that MMT is controversial. Is that true? Where does it sit uh, amongst other economists? Is it really controversial? And what are their objections to it? Uh, you asked me to give you a short answer. Oh, and then you sorry. Ask me that <laughs> would, that's a really long... Would you, that, would that's you like to really take that long. on notice? <laughs> um, no, uh, I, I'll, I'll give you a short answer, but it won't be an adequate one. Um, the... Uh, MMT has got much further in banks and financial institutions uh, than it has in academia. So if you, if you go and talk to investment managers, as I sometimes do, they'll say things like, yeah, we had that Bill Mitchell here last year. He was the most popular speaker we've had for years. Or if you do the same thing in North America or across Europe, they'll say, God, thank goodness we had Stephanie Kelton come to talk to us recently. She's so perceptive. Um, and 
there's a mix of people in banks because there are some of them that, have, that are, uh, come out of academia and they tend to be negative about MMT, but there is a large uh, pool of people uh, in finance who actually use modern monetary theory and the tools that we talk about to try and make sense of the world because the MMT economists like Bill and Stephanie and Randy Ray and Warren Mosler have been so right about so many things over the last 30 years that actually if you followed their advice and you're in finance, you tended to make money. Would you say um, that um, governments are now behaving as if it were real? So we have a lot of money being injected into the economy in, in Australia and other places? Well, I would say that modern monetary theory simply describes the monetary system. And I have never had a mainstream economist ever really substantially argue with me about that. They argue that, sure, that's true, but it's obvious. Uh, I don't think it's significant. Um, and then they go back to their old narrative, which sounds as though they didn't understand it in the, in the first place. But the stuff I was talking about, about being a currency issuer and about the Commonwealth government not possibly running out of our currency, given the way the monetary system works, is something where nobody has ever disagreed with me about that. And that's because it's a simple fact. It's just whether it's important or not. What we think it's important. They don't. Does that mean that modern monetary theory is not a set of policies, it's just descriptive? Uh, it has a descriptive element and it has a prescriptive element if you are interested in full employment and if you're interested in environmental sustainability. The descriptive element is what I spend most of my time talking about because I teach banking and finance, which is let's have a look in detail how institutions actually work in a modern monetary system and when I do that when I teach it to a class I often don't tell them it's MMT until the end I just describe the whole thing and then by the time they get to the end if they've not done economics before they've learned MMT without realizing that's the descriptive side there is a prescriptive side though which says if you want to achieve and sustain full employment, like Australia had during the years when inequality was falling after the Second World War to the 1970s. You can do that. If you want to do it without inflationary pressures building up, then you need to design what we call a federal job guarantee as an automatic uh, cyclical stabilizer where when you need to slow the economy down, you are not consigning people to involuntary unemployment and poverty. They can work in the job guarantee. When the economy picks up, people can come out of the job guarantee and they're available to go back into the workplace. And on the Green New Deal front, um, if somebody tells you, well, we can't make these investments in renewables, in green infrastructure, in whatever it is that you want to build into a policy platform like that, our prescription is to say, well, actually, that depends on whether you can resource your plans. But resourcing your plans means if you want to build lots of solar panels. Do you have all the components available? Can you make the aluminium? 
Do you have the skilled workers? Because if technically you can do it, our message is that finding dollars is not a problem. You just need to pass a budget through Parliament and the dollars will be there for you. So can we afford to make the investments we need to make to have a sustainable, equitable society? Our message is, yes, you can. You just have to be careful how you go about resourcing those investments so it's not inflationary and so you don't eat up your entire ecological budget before you've built a sustainable society that you're aiming for. I think I've almost run out of questions, but I think this is a much bigger topic that uh, could take weeks. Uh, we've really only touched on a few things. Are there any areas that you think we should be uh, talking a, a bit more about? Um, no, not particularly. I could just point out if people want to check this one fact just to show that I'm not uh, I'm not um, um, uh, messing around with people's heads here. Uh, when the pandemic struck in Australia, in when was it? March 2020. The treasurer Josh Frydenberg, who had been talking about wanting to run a budget surplus only a few months before, remember, and been on the brink of uh, of uh, managing to do so, having struggled, left all those people unemployed, left all those investments unmade in the years before to try and bring it about. Um, he overnight was happy to promise to do $200 billion of deficit spending. Now, where did those $200 billion come from? The thing is, there were fewer than $40 billion in existence in private banks reserve accounts in March 2020. What does that tell you? It tells you that not only, obviously, they weren't going to raise taxes, but it tells you that they couldn't have gone and borrowed those dollars because they simply didn't exist. You had to spend the dollars into the system before you then chose, for reasons I won't go into now, to uh, auction treasury bonds to suck some of those dollars back out again. But they had to be spent into existence by the federal government or, and this happened a lot too, lent into existence by Reserve Bank before they could not only be paid in taxes, but before they could be spent on government bonds. So it was that way around. The way the, the government reacted to the pandemic demonstrated not only that modern monetary theory is right, but also that they know it's right. Yes, you've kind of touched on a, a question that uh, I was going to ask, which is, are there any governments around the world that formally accept the ideas of modern monetary theory, or are they just doing it implicitly like the Australian government? Um, well, uh, I'd, I'd be happy if in a few years' time we can just drop the term modern monetary theory and just call it macroeconomics, and which is what William Mitchell and Randall Ray and Martin Watt's textbook does, actually. Um, the leading Australian MMT economist brought out a textbook uh, a couple of years ago. He didn't call it modern monetary theory. He just called it macroeconomics. All we're arguing is that the way the monetary system works and policymakers around the world already know how the monetary system works. 
all we're saying is once you understand how the monetary system works, it really ought to change the way you discuss everything. And again, it's, it's obvious that governments normally run deficits. The US government, since independence, has hardly ever run a surplus. Over you know, 200 odd years, they always run deficits. I often show, because the Bank of England provide this data, data for the UK government going back to the 18th century. And the UK government has, uh, in the mid-19th century, on the backs of the empire, they balance the budget. But other than that, the UK government has usually run a deficit year after year, decade after decade, you might say century after century. Now, a household can't do that. A business can't do that. For that matter, the government of South Australia or New South Wales couldn't do that. Not always and forever. But the US government can. The Australian government can. And I can guarantee to anybody watching this that however long you live into the future, assuming that the entire global system doesn't collapse because of ecological catastrophe, for a good 80% of your life, if not 90% from now on, as in the past, the Australian Commonwealth Government will deficit spend. You don't need to worry about that. They're just making a net deposit of dollars in the banking system. And of course, the dollar value of what people call the national debt will increase. But it's not your debt. It's not debt in a conventional sense at all. After all, how can they meaningfully borrow something they issue themselves? Instead, it's better called the net money supply because dollars that the federal government has spent into the system but not yet taxed back out of it, which is what the national debt is, are dollars that we have that we personally didn't have to borrow into existence. It, it, it sounds like uh, amongst practitioners they behave as if modern monetary theory is correct. But then we still have governments, as I was saying in my opening remarks, that we will be a fiscally responsible government. And there's something politically attractive about saying that they will be running in a surplus. Uh, do you have any sense of why that is? Uh, I have a, a good sense of why it is, I think. Yeah, um, some of them genuinely do believe it. The politicians, they've, they're accountants, they've come from bis a business background, um, or maybe they've even been in state governments, and they, so they're used to operating as currency users. If you are a currency user, what they're saying is absolutely right. What they don't understand is that the federal government is in a different position to everybody else. On the other hand, there are some people, including um, their advisors and more brainy of their advisors, who are like the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Samuelson, who I quote, or I refer to anyway, in the chapter in the book that you've edited. And there is a, a, a link there to a video of him being interviewed where he said something along the lines of... Um, the role of old-fashioned religions was to scare people to get them to behave responsibly the way we think they ought to behave. And there is a lot of that and always has been about the narrative. Samuelson knew that the US government 
could never run out of US dollars, at least if they can pass a budget through Congress. <laughs> they, they can't. But he thought it was useful if a lot of people thought the government could, because that would mean that politicians would behave responsibly. By responsibly, he may not spend too much and create inflation. And I think if they spend too much and create inflation as a result, we should vote them out of power. I don't think they should lie to us about the way the monetary system So that's, a, that's a political motive, not an economic one. Um, yeah, well, uh, I, I actually don't think they do tend to behave irresponsibly in the sense of spending too much. I think you're going to see in our federal election coming up, you're going to see Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison, uh, they're going to compete with each other for promising how quickly they're going yes, to well, the, the, repair the, the budget. The, in the paper this morning, there's the uh, the Liberal government is going to spend a billion dollars to save the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, a billion dollars to them. I mean, it seems like a lot of money. But actually, our whole economy in a year has output, which is a little bit more than two trillion dollars. So more than 2,000 times. There's a few coins rattling around the bottom of their pockets. I, I think, yes. um, Stephen, we, we're at a logical conclusion, unless there's something uh, important that you think we haven't covered? No, I think we've uh, covered everything, really. Uh, I would just add that another of the authors of a couple of chapters in the book with, with Stephen Williams, Phil Lorne, and I are going to be trying this year to design... Uh, some postgraduate courses in modern monetary theory and ecological economics, drawing on a, a lot of uh, your book or material underlying your book because there are no such qualifications in Australia at the moment. And I know that there are a lot of people, including in places like the RBA and uh, the Treasury in Canberra, who wish that was not the case. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try and begin to push Australian higher education towards a more, uh, what we think, uh, a more useful approach to thinking about economics and economic issues and economic policy, which is fit for the 21st century. Because at the moment, the narrative we listen to, the narrative we're going to hear in the election campaign is not fit for the challenges with which we are faced and particularly our ecological ch challenges. Both sides of the politics have an approach to dealing with these issues, which is wholly inadequate. Right, well, with that, thank you very much for your time, Stephen. Thanks, Rod.